the History Havoc podcast. Once again, I'm Eric Bynum, and I am hoping you were able to learn a little bit about history today. Last episode, I finished up talking about the Roman Republic, so today I'm going to continue down that avenue with the Roman Empire. This has always been a favorite topic of mine. Unfortunately, here in Texas, we're not required to teach anything in depth about the empire. And now that I mainly teach AP World History, it has actually been cut out of the curriculum. I do still feel it is an important part of history that helps us better understand some of the events and changes over time. My goal today is to give you a basic overview and talk about some of the major people and events that occurred during this empire. I cannot hit everything and everyone, so if there is something I leave out that you'd like to learn more about, let me know. You can find a Contact Me page on the website at historyhavoc.com. I'd love to hear from you on some topics you'd like to learn about. Anyway, let's get started. So grab your drink of choice. Of course, I have a nice hot cup of coffee in hand, and let's wreck some havoc on history. Part 1. The Beginnings of the Empire In 31 BCE, Octavian, Julius Caesar's adopted son, won a huge victory in the Roman civil wars over Mark Antony, who then fled to Alexandria. Mark Antony betrayed Rome when he allied with his lover Cleopatra after the Roman Senate declared war on Egypt, where Cleopatra was queen. Octavian and his army besieged Alexandria until Antony and Cleopatra both committed suicide in August of 30 BCE. This ended the Ptolemaic Egypt, which began when, with Alexander the Great's conquest in the 4th century BCE. Over the next few years, Octavian positioned himself to gain more and more control. Eventually, in 27 BCE, the Senate would usher in the era of the empire by bestowing upon Octavian overreaching powers and the title of Augustus, making him the first emperor. This also ushered in the Pax Romana, or Roman peace. This was an era of 200 years of peace throughout the empire. This time period was when Rome extended its borders to its fullest extent, and there were 70 million people living within the empire, roughly a third of the world's population. Rome began to build a series of roads that helped turn into one of the most powerful and prosperous empires the world had seen up to that point. The roads were important because it allowed the movement of goods, troops, and even written orders by the emperor to move at a faster rate of speed. It also helped with trade, and trade was so important because that was where a lot of the tax money was coming from. As we will see later on in the Pax Mongolica, or Mongol peace, having safe roads was an important aspect to trade. Travelers needed to feel safe traveling with their goods through an empire, or they would avoid it, leading to less tax money. The social hierarchy of the empire was similar to that of the Republic. The aristocracy, or patricians, continued to hold positions of power in the Senate. Augustus encouraged the elite to have more children and even provided a tax bonus to those that had more than two. He wanted that class to continue to grow in the empire. The poorer classes had a glimmer of hope, though, as they had the possibility of moving up in status, although it was highly unlikely. But it is amazing what hope can do for someone. Slaves were becoming more and more prominent in society. As large estates grew bigger, the need for more slaves became apparent. Greek slaves were also highly sought after for positions as teachers and doctors, which only kept alive the Greek culture. Sometimes slaves were able to buy their freedom, becoming freedmen, but a slave that ran away and was caught was branded with an F on their forehead for fugitivus, meaning fugitive. Women slowly gained more power as the years went by. During the tumultuous time period leading up to Augustus's rule, women were divorcing their husbands more and more. New inheritance laws allowed women to keep property, and so they began to assert their, their power here. While they did not have political power, the wealth that they could accumulate from property and running businesses allowed them to be more equal in social events and allowed them some political influence due to their wealth. But let me move to a topic that is a little less controversial. Religion. <laughs> okay, maybe not. 
Part 2, Religion. Anyway, the religion of the Roman Empire during this time was polytheistic, meaning they worshipped many gods. Syncretism also played a role in the religion during this time. That means they were combining religious practices of multiple religions. For instance, many started to combine the local Latin deities or gods with those of the Greek world, and if you study the Greek and Roman mythology, you will see a lot of similarities, but with different names. Rome required everyone to practice the state religion, but they also tolerated the practice of others. The empire took over control of Jerusalem in 37 BCE, and while some, like Cicero, were interested in the Jewish religion, and may have even taken a Jewish god into their pantheon of gods to worship, Romans were not willing at the time to worship just one god. Eventually, the Jewish people began to be the scapegoats for many issues. This caused the diaspora of the Jewish people, which has been seen again and again throughout history. FYI, a diaspora is a dispersion of people from their original homeland. We see this time and time again in history with different peoples, but it does happen many times to the Jewish population. Out of the Jewish community emerged Jesus, who was seen as a troublemaker among the Romans. He and his followers began spreading a new form of Judaism, which would later become Christianity. This religion found a home with the poor, slaves, and women for many reasons. Firstly, it provided the idea of a life after death. With so many poor and slaves living a life that was undesirable, the prospect of a good and eternal life after death was attractive. Christianity also gave them religion with a kind God. Instead of the old gods of the Roman Empire, who could be seen as cruel and punishing, Christianity gave the prospect of a kind and forgiving God. Two important people in the spread of Christianity in its beginnings were Peter and Paul. Peter was a follower of and knew Jesus. He died in 64 CE. Eventually, he came to Rome and is seen by the Roman Catholic Church as the first pope. Paul has his own story. Originally called Saul, Paul was a Jew who persecuted Christians early on. Then he had a sudden conversion to Christianity while traveling on the road to, to Damascus. He then began preaching around the Mediterranean and inspired many other preachers before he died in 65 CE. Paul was also an example of Roman law. After being arrested for defiling a Jewish temple by bringing in Gentiles, he was arrested and narrowly escaped death. He was held prisoner for two years before a new governor reopened his case. The governor decided he should be sent back to Jerusalem for trial, but Paul ex exercised his right as a Roman citizen to appeal unto Caesar and he was eventually sent back to Rome. After having spent another few years under house arrest in Rome, where he was continuing his preaching, he was finally put to death by beheading, which was the way Roman citizens were executed, unlike the crucifixion, which was reserved for slaves and enemies of the state. Christians also believed in martyrdom, which was the act of dying before giving up one's beliefs. Refusing to worship the Roman deities was against the law, and with Christianity become, being a monotheistic religion, or the worship of just one God, they refused to follow the law. This started the persecution and torture, imprisonment, and even killing of many Christians. As the religion continued to spread and gain popularity, it would become legal. In 313 CE, the Emperor Constantine declared Christianity to be legal in the Edict of Milan. Later on, and I will get to this when we discuss the split of the empire and get into the Byzantines, Christianity would become the official religion of the empire, it came a long way in just a few hundred years, but a lot of that was due to the work of Peter and Paul. Christianity was also a religion that wrote. The written accounts about the development of the religion would become a huge part of the Holy Christian text, the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote the Gospels telling about the life of Jesus. Paul wrote many letters to his followers as he advised them and 
commented on the teachings of Jesus. These books are now a part of the New Testament, which is a huge part of the Bible. Part 3. Growth of the Empire One of the things that helped grow the empire was trade. This is nothing new and certainly exists even today. But let's take a look at the trading routes that made Rome wealthy. Perhaps the most famous of the trading routes during this time period was the Silk Road. This was a network of trading routes going from East Asia, mainly China, into Europe. These roads helped connect different cultures and societies over long distances. There were several routes, and traders traveled based on weather, safety, there were some bandit attacks, and friendliness of the territories being crossed. Safety was a critical issue. If the route wasn't safe, there would be less traffic. Less traffic meant less tax that could be collected or less tribute. Many traders would pay tribute to local tribes for the safety of the routes. Many of the routes converged on Constantinople, making it an extremely important city. From there, it would disperse into Rome, either overland or via the Mediterranean Sea. But the Silk Roads were not the only important trading routes during this time. There were sea routes that were very important as well. The Indian Ocean trading routes carried a greater supply of goods. And for traders, a lower overhead. Less men were needed to carry more goods, because the need for horses or camels was not there. As goods traveled through the Indian Ocean, they could then travel up the Red Sea, where they could be sent overland, a much shorter land trip, into the Mediterranean and on to Rome. Once the goods hit the Mediterranean, they could be shipped to many parts of the Roman Empire. Since Rome controlled the entire Mediterranean at the height of its power, goods could reach all part of the empire with good speed. The goods traded were vast. Spices from India, porcelain and silk from China, fruits and vegetables from Southwest Asia, all wound up in the hands of the elite in Rome. Other civilizations got wealthy off the trade with Rome. Gold was a huge import along with salt, and both were found in Africa making the Trans-Saharan trading routes, or the Sand Roads, an important link to the empire as well. Trade helped the empire expand, and between 96 and 180 CE, the empire reached its height. Under the rule of Trajan, from 98 to 117 CE, the empire reached its greatest extent geographically. His wars of conquest put the empire at around 1.9 million square miles, or 5 million square kilometers. Emperor Hadrian, who followed Trajan, stopped the conquest for the empire and went more to a focus on securing borders and improving the infrastructure of the empire. Hadrian traveled throughout the empire, visiting with soldiers and overseeing some of the projects, including his famous wall. Hadrian's wall was an 80-mile wall in Britannia, or modern-day England, which marked the northernmost boundary of Britannia in 122 CE. You can still see parts of the wall today in England, and it has been a huge part of pop culture even today. It has been seen in many films, including 1991's Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, among others, but perhaps most famously, it was the inspiration for the wall in George R.R. R. Martin's book series, A Song of Ice and Fire, that was made into the hit HBO series, Game of Thrones. In fact, Martin took a lot from history when writing his books. And Emily Glenkler at Antisocial Studies did a fantastic podcast on it all last year. I will link to it in the blog post. Part 3. Splitsville. Population Rome. You may be asking yourself, what is he talking about with Splitsville? That wasn't a town in the Roman Empire, was it? No, absolutely not. Instead, the empire actually split into two. And how did they do that? With a pair of Caesars. <laughs> okay, bad jokes aside. 
when it came to splitting Rome, they did it in a way that was easy for them. Because, after all, they were always good at algebra, since x always equaled 10. No? Nothing? I can hear the silence already. Maybe I should just get on with it and talk about the split. In an effort to stabilize an empire that had grown too big, Diocletian splits the empire into two parts in the year 285 CE. The western part would still be governed with, from Rome, while the eastern portion governed from Byzantium, later to be renamed Constantinople. Diocletian ruled the eastern half of the empire, while Maximian ruled the western half. Diocletian is famous for the split of the empire and for something not as great, the Great Persecution. Emperor Diocletian wanted to forbid Christians from government and military positions. However, Gallerus, who Diocletian chose to succeed him as emperor, wanted extermination. After seeking out the advice of the Oracle of Apollo, Diocletian accepted universal persecution. In February 303, Diocletian issued his first edict against the Christians. Churches were to be destroyed, valuables were to be seized, and Christians were prohibited from assembling for worship. After a fire destroyed part of the imperial palace, Christians were seen as the culprits, and the persecution grew worse. However, in less than 25 years, persecutions would be over, the religion would be legal, and Christianity would be the preferred religion of the empire. This all comes under the reign of Constantine. He ruled from 306 to 337, and would become the first emperor to, to declare himself a Christian. In 330 CE, Constantine would rename Byzantium Constantinople. After himself, of course. It's good to be emperor sometimes. And that would become one of the most important cities for centuries. And later it would become the capital of the Byzantine Empire, which was the eastern part of the Roman Empire. But we will get to that later on. Part 4. The Fall of the Roman Empire The decline was slow and steady over the years, with trade over the major routes leading to great wealth. It also brought with it devastating diseases. Smallpox and the measles were just two examples of diseases that brought deadly consequences. As many died from disease over the years and the population decreased, trade slowed down. This translated into less tax money for the empire. As the tax money dipped, the infrastructure of roads and aqueducts were not repaired as often, and armies were not paid regularly. That led to the mutiny of armies making trade less safe, continuing the downward spiral of the empire. There were also environmental issues. As the population grew, so did the demand for more food and buildings. Forests were cut down for lumber and cleared for farmland. Overgrazing of land and farming marginal lands also increased, leading to the erosion of the soil, contributing more to the downward spiral. There was also an over-reliance on slave labor at this point in the empire. With slave labor traditionally taking on the task of tilling the fields and working as craftsmen, the labor shortage was created when the empire stopped expanding. Usually the military conquest would provide an influx of new workers, but around the 2nd century CE, that wasn't the case anymore. The rise of the eastern half of the empire also posed an issue for those in the west. As the division grew greater, the east continued to grow strong in Constantinople and the two sides stopped working together. The strength in the east proved an issue in the west as well, making the west a bigger target for raiding barbarians due to it being weaker. Eventually the western half would fall, but the eastern half would go on to be a strong player on the world stage for another thousand years. Even overexpansion helped to bring the empire to its knees. As the empire spread all the way from Britannia to the Euphrates River in the Middle East, the vastness was a downfall. Troops, goods, and even messages could not be sent fast enough to areas of need, despite the good road system that was built. As more and more was spent on the military, the infrastructure became outdated and in need of repair. 
Hadrian built his wall in the second century, and it signaled a time of defense in a vast empire. Government corruption. Ah, yes. Even I paused here waiting for the joke. But I think that's it. Government corruption. Anyway, taking over the position of emperor during the second and third centuries was almost a death sentence. Some 20 men claimed the title in just 75 years, usually taking over after his predecessor had been murdered. The throne was even auctioned off at one point by the emperor's guards. Yes, you heard me right. So let's look at this for a moment. In 192, Commodus was emperor, and he had been for some 15 years. During the last years of his reign, he fought as a gladiator. Always winning, of course. But then some of his guards conspired to assassinate him and replace him with Pertinax, which they did. However, Pertinax only lasted three months as emperor before he was assassinated and the throne auctioned off to the highest bidder. Pertinax, like Commodus, was assassinated by the Praetorian Guard, or the Emperor's Guard, because he had not paid them in full. The winner of the bidding was Didius Julianus, who for many years had a promising political career. His emperorship lasted nine weeks. Three other generals laid claim to the throne after the death of Pertinax. And when Septimius Severus, the general closest to Rome, came calling with his army, Didius was no match. Didius was eventually abandoned by the Senate and his own guard, then killed by a soldier in the palace. The year 193 CE became known as the Year of the Five Emperors. Severus eventually defeated the other two generals, claiming the throne to become emperor, where he would stay in power until 211. But that just shows you how corrupt the empire could be. Add to all of this the impact of raiding societies and you have a recipe for destruction. Different quote-unquote barbarian tribes continued to move into the empire or began to invade the empire creating havoc. This overwhelmed the ability to fight off invaders and or allow them to assimilate into the empire. Between the Huns, led by Attila, the Goths, the Vandals, the Anglo-Saxons, the Lombards, and so many more, the empire's size and already declining economy army, and trust in the government led to its eventual demise. In 476 CE, Roman Emperor Romulus Augustulus was forced to abdicate, or give up, the throne to the Germanic warlord Odoacer, marking the end of the Western Roman Empire. Speaking of barbarians, I picked up a book over the summer called The Invasion of Europe by the Barbarians by J.B. Burry. He was a professor at Cambridge focusing on the Roman Empire. I hope to get to it shortly so I can add some more knowledge of this era to a later podcast, especially since the barbarians are an aspect of the fall of, the, of Rome that gets overlooked. You can find the book on Amazon or anywhere you find history books. It was published in 1928, and I'll do a review as soon as I can. Part 5. Legacies of the Empire So, legacy some of the ways that Rome has impacted societies over time. No? No legacy in that joke? Okay. First of all, the rule of law. Many nations, including the USA, take a page out of the Roman books with the idea of a senate and a system of representative government. Some of the founders of the USA, including James Madison, who helped write many of our founding documents, studied Roman history and used their system as a model. Architecture is another big aspect that many places around the world have since adopted from Rome. The dome and paved roads are taken from Rome, as well as Roman columns, temples, and amphitheaters can be seen throughout the world still today. 
A few examples here in the U.S. can be seen in Washington, D.C. First of all, Union Station in D.C. is modeled after buildings in ancient Rome. The dome on the U.S. Capitol building is another example. The idea for the dome in D.C. was taken from the dome in Rome at the Pantheon. Thomas Jefferson actually saw the Capitol building as, it, as the first quote-unquote temple built for the sovereignty of the people. Check out the blog at historyhavoc.com for some of my photos when I was in D.C. a few years back, and last year when, when I was in Rome. The literature from classical Rome is still read and studied today. Poets, playwrights, philosophers, and historians' works, including the Aeneid by Virgil, comedies from Plautus, who has modern works based on his work. And Roman mythology can be seen in movies, literature, and even advertising. And lastly, language. Latin has provided the basis for the family of languages called the Romance languages. These include Italian, Romanian, Spanish, Portuguese, and French. Even English, although not a Romance language, traces nearly half of its words back to Latin roots. So as I wrap up episode four, I want to give another book recommendation for Rome. It is called SPQR, A History of Ancient Rome by Mary Beard. It has won many awards, and while well, I haven't finished it yet, Yes, I am one of those that reads like four books at a time. I've really enjoyed it so far. By the way, so you know, SPQR stands for Senatus Populus Que Romanus, or the Senate and People of Rome. Well, that about does it. Be sure to check out the blog at historyhavoc.com. And if you like what you hear, be sure to give us a, a rating and a review. This helps others find the podcast. Uh, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and now we're on iHeartRadio. Hope you enjoyed it and learned a little bit about history along the way. I will see you next time. And until then, stay classy and try not to wreck too much havoc. That's my job. Take care.